Well, as Ukraine's military battles Russian troops on the ground, there's another battle taking place. It's in the digital realm. Ukraine's cybersecurity authority says the cyber conflict with Russia is unprecedented, describing it as the world's first hybrid war. Russia has been actively using disinformation to wage an information war against Ukraine. But now Ukraine is fighting back by using social media to rally international support against Russia. This is Sarah Stewart-Holland. And this is Beth Silvers. Thank you for joining us for Pantsuit Politics. Hello, everyone. Thank you for joining us here on Pantsuit Politics, where we try to take a different approach to the news. Today, we're going to talk about the latest in Ukraine, including bringing back friend of the show, Klon Kitchen of the American Enterprise Institute and the Dispatch, to talk with us about the role cyber attacks and cybersecurity are playing in this conflict. Outside of politics, we'll give you a little update on our substitute teaching experiences really our first impressions as we've both spent some time in classrooms now. And before we get started, we want to say thank you so much to everyone who's pre-ordered our book, Now What?, which releases May 3rd. You've made our publisher very happy by putting those pre-orders in. This is a really important part of getting the book into the world for reasons that we both sort of understand and sort of do not. Well, and let me just take this moment publicly to say, I want to be a New York Times bestseller. Beth does not care. I care. I care for you. I want it. I want this for you. I, I want it. It sounds so nice. New York Times bestselling author, Sarah Stewart Holland and Beth Silvers. And word on the street is you need about 5,000 out the gate. You need to sell about 5,000 books out the gate to get the attention. Is it sort of a racket? Does anybody really know how the list works? Do some books show up on the list that sell way less than that? Yes, I'm aware of this. I understand that it is not a clear and transparent process, and I do not care. I want it anyway. So let me just put that out in the universe. That's another huge, important part to me and why I appreciate every single pre-order. Now, remember, we're having a pre-order like party in Waco, April 30th, before the book comes out on May 3rd. If you can join us, you're going to get the book a little bit sooner than it releases, which is exciting. If you're not, it's available for pre-order at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, anywhere you like to buy books. And if you pre-order now and Amazon drops the price between now and then, you will get it at the lowest price, so no reason to wait for a better deal. Pre-orders are truly the best way to help us launch this book out into the world. They show retailers people want the book. That helps them know how many have available. It helps the publisher know how many to print. So if you want the book, we would appreciate if you would go ahead and pre-order it. And as a thank you, we will have a special virtual event for everyone who pre-orders. We'll be announcing the details of that soon. But all you have to do is hang on to your receipt with your order number or let Gmail hang on to it for you, which is what I do, and you'll be able to get that special pre-order bonus. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. We are special breakfast people here at Pantsu Politics, but not just when Beth and I are on the road. The truth is I want something warm from the oven every Saturday morning and Sunday morning. 
It's just the truth. It makes it feel special, makes it feel exciting. I don't want to work at it. So the first time I ever saw Wild Grain, which is bake from frozen subscription box for sourdough breads, fresh pastas, and artisanal pastries. I was obsessed. You guys, I've been a member for over a year. It's amazing. It's so easy. Every item bakes from frozen in 25 minutes or less. No thawing required. You can fully customize your wild grain box. You can choose any combination of breads, pastas, pastries. You can even build a box of only breads, only pastas, or only pastries if you'd like. And for a limited time, you can get $30 off the first box, plus free croissants in every box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit to start your subscription. Sometimes I make one single croissant just for me because I want to feel special. And they're so good. You heard me. Free croissants in every box. And $30 off your first box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. That's wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. Or you can use promo code pantsuit at checkout. Do you want a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable? Thanks to Third Love, you can have both. Third Love was started to take all the frustration, ick, and ugh out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, aka problems. Their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. And they've even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit right. It's time to get your problems solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get 15% off your order with code PODCAST15. did a vibe check on Tuesday's show, Sarah, just to talk about how we're handling all of the hard news of the week. And I feel like we're going to do a similar thing today, but just narrow the scope a little bit, because since we talked on Tuesday, we have seen the terror that Russia is inflicting on Ukraine increase dramatically. We have seen Zelensky, Ukraine's president, address the United States Congress We have gotten a little bit more of a window into Putin's thinking, or at least how he's communicating within Russia about this crisis. So as you have seen all this come in this week, Sarah, what is standing out to you? What is really uh, capturing your attention? Well, let's talk about Zelensky's address first. You want to talk about that Mm -hmm. first? I watched it. I thought the, the video and then him speaking in English at the end was so impactful. The video was really heartbreaking to me because it was something I'd already been thinking about. I read somewhere about Kharkiv, which I knew to be an important, like, cultural city to Ukraine and its history. And and the analysis was like, there's just not going to be anything left. And I thought, oh, what would I feel if New Orleans was gone? Mm -hmm. What would I feel if Savannah was gone? These places that are so important to me that just hold a position in my heart, like, to our history and our culture— and then that video where they show these like beautiful, sunshiny tourist videos and then contrast it with the bombs and the destruction. And it was just heartbreaking. So many images of children um, bleeding, suffering or dying. And it just was it was heartbreaking and just visceral in a way that as you're just reading the reports, they're not. I mean, the video the video was 
very specifically designed to get the emotional response. And I gave that emotional response. It really, really was heartbreaking. I was in tears before the video. And then I I almost just like left my body during the video because it was so impactful and it was so much. Uh, and then when he spoke, as you said, in English at the end directly to us, you know, and he's and he is gifted at this. He is mm-hmm. gifted in making the message connect. I also thought about how those examples that he brought in to make this a speech for an American audience, he's doing that everywhere. He's thinking about mm-hmm. what will really connect with the Canadians, what will really connect with the Germans and the time and thought he is having to pour in to selling his case to the global audience made me feel kind of ashamed that he has to do that. And it also made me feel in awe of how he and his team are are making everything happen. They're, they're keeping all of these things in motion as the country is just being pummeled by Putin's forces. So it, I just I feel a lot of things about that address. I was glad to see so many members of Congress reacting strongly and without any kind of partisan talking points to this. I was really relieved that that we we brought our grown-up selves, apparently, to this session. I did have to check myself because, again, that video was designed to get an emotional response. Rightly so. I'm not mad at that. But then with the call for the no-fly zone, I had to th- I had I was in this space where I was like, do it, just do it now. And then I thought, wait. It's not like the cities will stop being destroyed on a dime or no more children will die if we do a no-fly zone. We all know that's not the reality. It is not a simple solution that will end the suffering immediately. And I just had to like, but that surge of like, just do whatever it takes, make this stop. is not a good place to make decision making from, right? And I'm not even in charge of this decision, so it doesn't matter. But like, I did have to be like, no, wait, like this... When you when you watch the video and he says and you see this like no fly zone call on the screen, it's just easy to link the two in your mind and say, like, if we do this, then this stops. And that is not the reality. I was really pleased also to see so many members of Congress, especially members who sit on committees where, you know, they have access to more information about all of this, praising Zelensky for asking for the no fly zone, but then also giving them an ask that they can say yes to asking for the planes Mm -hmm. as a backup. And and I saw a couple of people remark that they thought the planes would help Ukraine more than a no fly zone would. I saw where Eric Swalwell was just like, give him the goddamn planes. Yeah. And I thought that's where I am, too. Yeah. When they were talking about, oh, they can have we're going to give them drones they can carry in their backpack. I was like, yes, give them all of those. Do we have more? Could we make more? How fast could we make more? Could we give them to those to them as well? Like, you no, I totally agree. Like the other ask, I was like, give it all to him tomorrow, please, because that can make a difference. Mm-hmm. It's not just that Russia is, you know, their military force is so strong, but the restocking, the rearming, that's a real weakness on their side. That's where this could this could change, like the difference could continue to like branch out and branch out because Ukraine is going to have a flow of incoming supplies, whereas Russia is not. And that could make a difference to me. So right after I watched Zelensky's address to Congress, I watched a clip of Putin speaking in Russia that had been translated. I saw quite a few like reputable news people retweeting this. So I felt pretty good that it was a legitimate 
video that I was watching. Um, and in it, Putin was talking about uh, the West counting on this fifth column within Russia, like this idea that there are Russians who are more Western in their sensibilities. And this is where you get a little bit of a, a peek at that sort of philosophical or even religious fervor that Putin brings to the whole thing, because he was talking about people who are are just basically decadent. He talked about them with with oysters and wine. And that's pretty rich coming from the dude with the house I saw in Navalny's video. I thought so, too, that it's really interesting what's allowed and what's not allowed in Putin's mm-hmm. world. But but that's really the reason I wanted to bring this up, because him framing it as a struggle against liberals in the West is connecting with some Americans. And I just want to invite those folks to check out the body of information available about Putin and how he lives. Because we're just like the flow of companies not selling. Like we're talking about like Gucci, Apple, <laughs> like they're living some sort of different capitalistic experience. Like give me a breath. I mean, they're going to. They are now and it's going to continue to get worse. But they weren't before this. Right. I think there are Americans who are twisting themselves once again to support Mm -hmm. an imperfect leader using imperfect tactics to advance what they think are the most important messages on Earth. And I just have to say, like, whatever your ideology is, the bombing of a theater of people who are taking refuge, hundreds of children's dead, please do not let American politics infect the clarity that we have about how wrong this situation is under any ethical rubric. Yeah, it's disgusting. To me, it's like, well, then ISIS is okay. If the idea is like force is okay if it's to build back your like theological empire, well, then what's good for Christianity must be good for other religions as well. Like it's just it's so transparent and intellectually bankrupt to me. Like it's I can't even I can barely engage with it. I have spent a lot of time this week reading and and listening to experts on Putin. I do feel my perception of him shifting. I definitely, before this, saw him as more simply personally motivated by power. I don't think I understood the level at which this sort of Russian empire motivated him. The idea that, like, he has built a, one of the only and most recent monuments to Ivan the Terrible, like, is real weird, but also illuminating. Um, so I do feel like I, I and like, his worldview is coming into focus as much as it can for somebody like him who, you know, remains a sort of a lockbox in a lot of ways. The other, mo- like, I th- felt like the other most illuminating thing I learned this week about him was that he's been so secluded from COVID that, like, a small circle of advisors has shrunk down to zero. And I thought... Well, that's what happens when you're someone like him in his position inside your own brain. That's why solitary confinement is cruel and unusual punishment, right? Because we're not meant to be by ourselves inside our own brains. And like that is clearly playing out. Like he just has no one telling him the truth. And that's how dangerous that is, especially if you're building this theological empire-motivated worldview, right? I think that's right. And focusing on his miscalculations, his strategy, the way that he looks at all of this from sort of a military perspective, 
has been helpful to me. Reading people who have that kind of lens for the situation helps me. And that's why we wanted to bring back Klon Kitchen. Klon Kitchen is a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. He writes an excellent, excellent newsletter now at The Dispatch that I can't recommend enough. I read it faithfully. And Klon is here to help us think about the cybersecurity aspects of this conflict in particular, but that conversation, I think, is very illuminating about all the dynamics at work here. If you're looking for a very quick salon quality, but not salon priced manicure, Olive and Jean has you covered. We've talked about Olive and Jean's Manny system before. It has everything that you need for a professional manicure in one box, salon grade tools, your choice of six polishes. Those polishes are going to last you for seven days or more. The cost breaks down to about $2 a manicure. Olive and June also has press-ons if you want. What I love, though, is that Olive and June each season is coming out with new colors, and I just got a set of spring and summer colors in quick-dry polish. They say this dries in about a minute. It seemed dry to me in about 30 seconds. It was not kidding about being quick-dry. I also love the light colors in this set. There is a huge range. My favorite one is called Kitten. It's like a pinkish gray. The quick dry polish gives you full coverage in one or two coats. It lasts for more than five days and it is offered in more than 40 cruelty-free and vegan polishes. Olive and June just understands what's happening in our lives, that we need to move quickly, but we want to look great and feel great and have fun in the process. Visit oliveandjune.com slash pantsu for 20% off your first system. That's O-L-I-V-E-A-N-D-J-U-N-E dot com slash P-A-N-T-S-U-I-T for 20% off your first Manny system. Just finished A Court of Thorns and Roses and craving another fantasy world to devour? Dipsy's got you. Dive into spicy enemies to lovers' tales or embark on an epic romance between immortal fae and sworn foes. They've got fantasy romance stories perfect for your morning walk, late night, or long bath. Dipsy is an app full of short, spicy audio stories. They bring scenarios to life with immersive soundscapes and realistic characters. Discover stories about second chance romances, adventurous vacation flings, and hot and heavy hookups. And there's a growing library of fantasy series with werewolves, Greek gods and goddesses, Regency-era historical fiction, and fairy smut to explore the bounds of your pleasure. New content is released every week, so in between listening to your favorite stories again and again, you can always find something new to explore. For listeners of the show, Dipsy is offering an extended 30-day free trial when you go to dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. That's 30 days of full access for free when you go to dipseastories.com slash pantsuit. dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Can I get something off my chest? Every day I feel a little pang of sadness. Because I think about Griffin going away to college. Y'all, he's a freshman in high school. This is not healthy or normal. This is why I have it on my list of things to talk to my therapist about. We all carry around these things. Big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us. Therapy is a safe space to get these things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapist anytime for no additional charge. You gotta get it off your chest. And you can get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash pantsuit today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash pantsy.
Dawn, thank you for coming back to Fancy Politics. I want to start by asking you how we should put cyber attacks in context. So before Russia invaded Ukraine, the administration told us to expect cyber attacks to start as a precursor to that invasion and to remain a part of Russia's strategy. I feel like we haven't heard about it at all, which is understandable given the violence that's been inflicted on the ground. But what is going on in that realm? Maybe it would be helpful as to explain why we were saying those things, because it includes me. I was saying that as well. And then kind of how I'm interpreting what we're seeing and, and maybe why that is what we're seeing. The reason we thought this was going to come is, is, is you know maybe three aspects. One, we know that Russia has the capability. So they've demonstrated cyber capabilities for years now. So if they wanted to take an action, they certainly had the, the capacity to do that. Two, it makes just imminent operational sense. So if you're going to move a military uh, force into another country, it makes sense that you would turn off some of their, for example, their air defense systems, the type of missiles that could attack your aircraft, uh, some of their early warning radar and other capabilities, the, the kind of stuff that frankly, has just become a core part of our own operational doctrine, right? This is just the the barriers to entry are so low. The operational benefits are so high. There's just no real reason not to do it, right? So we know they had the capability. There's all the justification militarily in the world for them to do it. And frankly, we, we think we saw some precursors to some of that activity. You know, I think we, I think on the intelligence side, we were seeing things that indicated that, that that capability was kind of being spun up. Okay, so that's why we were predicting it. Why we didn't see it, I think. While there has been some kind of one-off stuff, generally speaking, it has not materialized the way we anticipated. And as I've been thinking about it, I, I suspect there are, again, three, three aspects to that. One, I think there's some strategic choice. So I think Putin, one, assumed he was going to roll in much quicker than what has actually transpired. I think he was expecting that this was going to be pretty easy. And so he was using the... Um, the kind of pottery barn rule, like, okay, if we're going to own this place afterwards, I don't want to break everything. If we're going to have to rebuild all this stuff. And two, I think he was also uh, concerned, you know, previously they've conducted cyber operations in Ukraine that have bled out of the nation. So there was something uh, a couple of years ago called the NotPetya attack, which is this huge cyber campaign that actually escaped Ukraine and caused tens of billions of dollars of damage around the world. Massive. And I think he definitely wanted to avoid that because had that occurred, that likely would have provoked an even stronger NATO response. And so by keeping everything inside Ukraine, he's managing his risk. Hmm. So I, I think I think that's the second aspect. The third aspect is I think you probably tried some stuff and we were able to push it back. So in the months before uh, all this kicked off, the United States actually made it clear that we had deployed multiple different cyber units to the region. Some were operating in Kiev initially before the invasion, and then have since moved around to kind of Eastern Europe more broadly now that the invasion has occurred. And I am suspecting that some of the lower levels, uh, kind of tactical cyber stuff that, that Putin might've been trying to do, I think we probably found it and kicked them out. So uh, I think, yeah, those are the three reasons that I'm coming up with as to why the, the, the promised cyber Armageddon hasn't materialized the way we thought it would. Not to take us down a rabbit hole, but how does a cyber attack spread outside where you want it to go and cause billions of dollars of damage outside the goal of the attack? So it it, it all depends on what you're using. So I would break it down. There's You can break this down to a much greater degree, but break it down into two parts when you talk about a cyber attack. The first part is breaking into the system that you're trying to 
either attack or or kind of spy on. And that requires um, leveraging a vulnerability. There's something in the security architecture. There's some kind of missing code that you're in. It's the unlocked door that you push on to get in. Right. That's the first part. The second part is the delivery of malicious software that then enables you to do what you're trying to do, either attack or spy. So in the case of the um, the NotPetya attack, the attack code, once they had gained access, the, the attack code was self-replicating and was intended to quickly spread throughout Ukrainian networks. That was the whole point of it, right? And it was what was called wiperware. So it's kind of like ransomware, but instead of locking your stuff up, your stuff up, it just completely destroys it and removes Ugh. it. So it's really, really bad. Well, you can you can tailor, you can try to tailor that attack malware so that it only operates on, for example, machines that have a Ukrainian-based IP address, you know, a computer that's in Ukraine, but that's not foolproof. Uh, and so in this case, uh, it wasn't, and it actually ended up spreading even to computers in Russia. Mm. Um, and so there, those kinds of, or, you know, some person, because they're not thinking puts it on a thumb drive because they think they're going to, you know, take it somewhere else. And, you know, some cybersecurity researcher decides they're going to put it in a sandbox and, and play with it, but they plug it in the wrong computer. And all of a sudden now it's spreading on those. I mean, it's just, it's, so it's like That's a virus why, in real life, too. Well, precisely. Exactly. They're called viruses for a reason. I think I understand that better and also regret now that I know what wiperware is. Mm, yeah, it's pretty nasty stuff. Can you talk about those cyber mission teams? Who is that? What kind of skills are there? And and at what point is that kind of activity? Where's the line between that kind of activity and, and combat? Well, uh, so the the line is a perforated line, right? Um and, and part of that is because, you know, if, I, if I'm on your network and I can observe, I'm one keystroke away from being able to attack, right? That, that's, the, that's the nature of cyber. And so that line between what we call computer network exploitation, CNE, versus computer network attack, right? Even between those two and, and computer network defense, that's a, that's a gray line. The only thing that changes is not typically the code or the people, it's the authorities that you're relying on. So you're like, okay, we're transitioning now to computer network attack. So I'm invoking Title 10 authorities, vice computer network spying. I'm, I'm relying on Title 50 authorities, things like that. So more nerd stuff, but that's the basic idea. <laughs> um, in terms of who these people are, the, the, the cyber mission teams um, are uh, military units. Uh, they're not only military units, but they're predominantly military units. Uh, a couple of years ago, the U.S. military stood up a, a national cyber mission force. Uh, each service branch, so Army, Navy, Air Force, Marines, um, and so on, uh, have their own cyber force within them, and, and they deploy, and they have different missions. So one mission is the protection of, of defense networks. Another mission is um, you know cyber support to combat operations. Um, at the national level, so it's something like U.S. Cyber Command and the NSA. It's focused on protecting the U.S. nation. So um, the ones that were deployed primarily consisted of those who do the support to tactical operations. And so what are private companies, like what role are private companies playing? So private companies are playing a huge role uh, in, in, in cybersecurity particularly. So as soon as this all started cooking off and a little bit before, um, the uh, cybersecurity threat groups in Microsoft and Google and Facebook, and by the way, these are eminently capable 
very well-resourced organizations. I mean, these are companies who obviously are massive in and of themselves, but cybersecurity for these companies is a bet the business problem. Mm -hmm. No one's going to use Microsoft Office if it's constantly being compromised. So they put real resources behind this and they hire the best uh, people out there. Um, And and they're very effective and they're very capable. And so they jumped in, all these companies kind of jumped into action. They uh, proactively, you know, did what's called threat hunting and threat mitigation, looking for bad guys and kicking them out. Uh, sending information to their users in country saying, here's how you can protect yourself. You know, Facebook was, look, here's sources of information and news. Uh, here's a way to secure your, your Instagram account and your WhatsApp account and so on and so forth. So they have been an instrumental player in, um, in what's going on in Ukraine. And right now, for example, Facebook made the decision. I'm writing about this um, in a, I don't know when this will air, but in an in a upcoming newsletter, I write about how Facebook has actually made the decision to allow um, Ukrainian users in Ukraine to use the platform to resist the Russian military. And, you know, in light of those efforts, the Russian government has um, formally identified Facebook and and Instagram as, quote, terrorist organizations. And so you've got, you know, a private sector company now essentially donating their platform to resistance fighters Mm. and uh, being called a terrorist organization by a hostile foreign government. Wow. How much coordination should we understand as existing among these private companies and the U.S. government? Uh, Quite a bit, not as much as I would like. Hmm. Um, So there are some mechanisms and they've become more formalized over the last couple of years. So CISA, CISA is the cybersecurity infrastructure security agency under the Department of Homeland Security. So these are the people charged with securing U.S. homeland networks and critical infrastructure. Jen Easterly is the director of CISA, and uh, she's really, really good. And she has a counterpart at the NSA named Rob Joyce, uh, who is also very, very good. And both Rob and Jen have put a lot of work into building um, and tightening the latch up between government and industry because um, the majority of critical infrastructure networks exist in the private sector. Constitutionally, the U.S. government can't be on those networks doing these things. Um, and there is no scenario where the United States is able to kind of secure itself from a cyber perspective absent a deep integration of the private sector. Mm. Then on top of that, you've got the fact that so many of these private companies are legitimate geopolitical players now, right? Right. I mean, they have influence and they have interests on the world stage that rival a lot of other countries. And so it just just makes imminent sense to be able to work with them, deconflict with them and engage with them. So you talked about Russia, you know, they've banned Instagram. I'm trying to really think through their use of technology through the prism of censorship and through the prism of propaganda and make sure I'm sort of delineating those two things. I've read and and listened to some analysis that sort of compares Russia with China, that China is so much better at censoring and, and locking down their Internet. Russia's learned a lot from them, but they're not quite there yet. But they are much better at sort of the misinformation propaganda aspect of it and and manipulating what people think. So how how do you see their use of cyber in both of those those arms in this current conflict? Well, they're certainly pursuing both aims in terms of isolating their domestic population from outside news um, and then uh, using 
online media and social media, particularly as a, as a vehicle for propaganda. So both of those things are happening. Um, on the isolating of their, of their population, uh, they're doing well enough. Um, what, what China has done, you know, China has deliberately taken it to 11. Uh, and, you know, they've built what's called the Great Firewall. This is the kind of the internal infrastructure of their internet that where they essentially allow and disallow things to come in and, and to be available to um, to their domestic uh, population. And you can't go to China and just fire up a VPN and watch what you want. No, it's actually been made illegal. Wow. Um, well, let me let me a uh, slight nuance there. VPNs in and of themselves are not illegal. However, VPNs using standard encryption, which the government cannot crack are illegal. So you can have a VPN, but it can only employ a level of encryption that the government is able to um, pierce. Interesting. Uh, so that's that's what's going on in China. Um, now with with Russia, uh, you know they've got a pretty good hold on what information their domestic population sees. Uh, the overwhelming majority of, of, of Russian citizens consume media from state owned or at least state you know influenced. Um, sources. So they're, they're doing well enough there in that regard. In terms of the use of propaganda, I mean, Russia's an old hand at using propaganda. I mean, they this is something they know. They've done a good job of embracing the, the new vehicles like social media. We actually think we've seen the first deep fake. So it looks like Russia actually created a deep fake of Vladimir uh, Zelensky, where he's reportedly telling the Ukrainian forces to lay down their arms. Wow. People like me have been talking about this probably for four or five years. It's kind of it's kind of weird seeing it happen. It didn't make as big of a splash as you know I would have thought it would have four years ago, but that's because we've been talking about this so long. So I'm actually quite pleased with how fast we were kind of like, mm, no, that's not real. And we just kind of moved on. I appreciated one of your recent newsletters where you broke down sort of what Anonymous is and what mm-hmm. Anonymous is doing as part of this conflict. Can you talk a little bit about that? Both just definitionally, <laughs> Anonymous has been around forever, and I still feel like I don't have a good handle on on what it is. Um, so you could talk about that and what they're doing in Russia. I always know that my emotional response to any headline, like citing Anonymous is unhealthy, because I'm always like, oh, goody. And I'm like, this is always a sign in a historical moment that things are a little off the edge when I'm like excited to see Anonymous participating. Well, good. Yeah. So um, <laughs> that's the right well, reaction. So, exactly. That's like a red flag for me. I'm like, wait, if I'm celebrating Anonymous's present, this is a bad sign. That's right. Yeah. A healthy, a healthy distrust of oneself is is always, I think, <laughs> good when it comes to cyber. Okay. So the reason why we're even talk, having this conversation, I assume, Beth, is because Anonymous has come out and said, hey, in light of Ukraine, we're going after Russia. Mm-hmm. And they've, you know, hacked Russian television stations and they've, you know, supposedly uh, put um, anti-Putin material in into uh, Russia and so on and so forth. Okay, so Anonymous is not a hacking group in the sense of a bunch of folks who are friends and are like, yeah, you know, we're going to stick it to the man and Anonymous, woo. Uh, they're, they're what's called a hacking collective. And what what's interesting about it is that the only thing that is required to become a part of Anonymous is to claim to be a part of Anonymous. So there's no there's no orienting, you know, organizational structure. There's, there's no, there's no kind of manifesto that everybody agrees to. There's no leadership. There's no followers. It really is just a group of hackers who sometimes uh, work um, cooperatively and sometimes work independently, and there's no governing body or anything like that. Now, what that means is, is that there's a huge variation in both the skill 
of hackers who claim to be a part of Anonymous and their targets. So they've done some cool things like what they're doing right now. What, what I, I hate saying they, because hackers using that, that moniker are going after Russia. And that is, you know, in a line with, with generally my aims. And so, okay, I, I get it. Um, they've also, they've also gone after um, some Mexican drug cartels, you know, where they've, where they've gone into their systems and, and doxxed or released information that they've been able to pull off them. Um, at the same time, they've also attacked the FBI. They've attacked um, normal, you know, citizens, political figures. Uh, they've done a lot of things that are just awful as well. And so um, even when anonymous is doing actions that can you know be argued as, as you know good, they're often always making everything more difficult and mm. and the general situation less manageable and predictable. Mm. Um, so I'm not a big fan. Um, I think there are other capabilities at our disposal that could that could accomplish and that are accomplishing the, the same ends without these guys kind of jumping in the pool and, and making waves. Well, and it feels like to me that a group like Anonymous operates in this foundational understanding of us having one internet, one global internet, yep. when that does not seem to be true anymore. Um, yep. Between China's firewall and Russia's, you know, sort of increasing segregation of their population. How do you think about it when people say the internet? <laughs> do we have an internet anymore? Is that a thing? Well, we do, but it is fracturing. Uh, and this is the bad news. So this is referred to sometimes as the splinter net. And so mm. the, the, here's the, here's the, I'm actually, again, writing about this in, in uh, this newsletter coming up, but essentially the bottom line is we like to think of this internet as this, Oh, this is this borderless panacea in which we all kind of traipse around. There's lots of puppies and unicorns and it's wonderful. And it's great. And also lots and, of and porn, it, but whatever. Well, well exactly. <laughs> exactly. And, and, and one of the things that we're realizing is, is that for a long time, states governments felt like their sovereignty was was eroding that 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 people on the internet and and companies that kind of were building the internet were somehow beginning to infringe on state sovereignty well then the state remembered oh wait a minute we've got guns mm. and they realized that the internet actually exists on servers and servers exist in real time and space. And so they have started building policies. That typically, this is referred to as data localization. And so what that looks like is, is you know, China saying, okay, anyone who's collecting or leveraging data um, in China or about Chinese citizens, you've got to be inside our country so that we can manage that and not let it get stolen or abused or used or anything else. Uh, which then, of course, puts the government in control of all of that information. And as... Um, more people look at the Chinese model, more governments look at the Chinese model where they begin, um, you know, putting a, a, essentially a bubble around their internet that begins fracturing the internet. And then, you know, you don't have to be a totalitarian to, to want to do some of that. So the United States has real concerns about American citizens data being pilfered by Chinese companies like TikTok. We don't have to go in that again. I know everybody has strong feelings about TikTok. You're convincing me over time, Klon. I'm really coming around. I've deleted it off my phone for Lint, and I don't want the Chinese government to have a content path into my brain more than anything else. Well, you know, listen, we all we all make our choices. It's perfectly fine. <laughs> um, no, I'm just going to say that, you know, we have our own interests that are driving us towards similar decisions. Um, and so it, there is, I think, an inevitability that 
what we've understood as the internet for so long is fundamentally changing. And I do suspect that you probably will end up largely having at least two internets with their own different norms and rules, one in kind of free democratic societies and one for increasingly totalitarian uh, regimes. So uh, I do think that's that's something that's on the on the horizon. Well, while we are making predictions, and and I want to say before I ask you this question, I recognize that it's probably kind of miserable to be an expert on anything that touches on Ukraine and Russia. So I know this is a hard question, but what do you think happens next on the cyber front with this war? I imagine that it largely stays status quo right now. Um, the thing that I think would change that is if the if the war actually escalated, like if expanded to include more more countries. So at the point where this kind of becomes NATO versus Russia or something like that, I mean, it, it's you know all rules are off. It's mm-hmm. it's full on. It's 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 game time. And cyber will be a huge part of that, but it won't be our it won't be our biggest concern at that point. There may be a t- a point where Putin makes the calculation that unleashing non-state cyber groups like ransomware groups um, could play to his benefit, you know, in terms of like harassing Europeans or even the U.S. as a way of kind of turning the screw. But I also think that given the circumstances, he's less likely to do that than perhaps he once was because we're all you know, kind of on a knife's edge here. And if there were, say, a colonial pipeline attack now, we would just interpret that right way different than we did previously. And and so I don't think that he wants to risk turning the volume up um, and, and unless something really decisively changes in the circumstances. Uh, that didn't ask me, but let me give my prediction. I think it's more likely that if he has to pull back militarily, if there is even some sort of negotiated withdrawal, that's when he dials up the cyber because he's like, well, I can't I can't do this anymore. So I can at least make your lives miserable now that I've pulled back and have a little more time and energy and resources to do something else. Sort of like what we saw before. Right. Like he goes back to what he was using before he was invading other countries. Yeah, yeah I think I think you, you raise a good point, Sarah. I mean, um on the way out, like if it's been a, just a, a, a total loss for him, I could see him trying to burn the place down. But again, I think that would include things like indiscriminate shelling and all kinds of awful stuff too. Um, and then, yeah, if it was, if it was a, if he, if we somehow convinced him to pull out of the country, we came to some type of settlement. Um, they're taking massive military losses. Russia yep. is. And so in an effort to, you know, kind of, pitch one across the plate that backs the batter up a little bit, you know, like, Hey, mm-hmm. you may think that we've taken a hit uh, militarily, but you know, don't forget, I've still got this capability right. and right. You know, I'll, I'll throw it at your head if I need to. Yep. Well, as we wind up here, I want to ask you just kind of how worried you are at this point. And if you were advising the white house, is there any kind of major strategic shift that you would be pushing for? So I, you know, two things, um, one, look, I, I don't know how to say this otherwise. I'm a Christian and I don't get too worried about this stuff just because because of some of my own theological convictions in that regard. But I'll also say I've been doing this for a long time. And if I allow myself to be um, kind of swept away by every awful thing, man, mm-hmm. I would never get out of bed. You know, mm-hmm. it's just because the world's hard. There's lots of stuff going on. And uh, yeah, so I don't get too bent out of shape about this stuff. 
that being said, it is very serious. We're not talking about reindeer games here. This is this yeah. is real. This is very important. And real lives are it's are are being affected. And that that's miserable to think about. Uh, in terms of what I would what I would recommend, in the near term, I think we're largely doing what we can. I think we're largely handling this the way we should. I would appreciate it if the president would stop negotiating against himself and mm-hmm. and constantly explaining what we're not going to do. I know why he's doing that. I I can appreciate that, but I think it's counterproductive. You know, ultimately, I would prefer Russia be more concerned. Are we going to take the U.S. if we do? If, are we going to take them off if we do this, rather than us constantly? telling them we, we don't want to take them off, hmm. but that's well within the realm of debate. So that's fine. Yeah. In terms of grand strategy, I think I would say, okay, Mr. President, this is the new normal. This isn't going away. No matter how this gets resolved, we are now in a cold war with at least two major national belligerents. We need a military and a national security strategy that recognizes that and it deals with appropriate. I mean, the level of military spending that is going to be required Mm. To put us in a position to deal with the world as it currently is, is unbelievable. I mean, we're talking trillion dollar annual defense budgets. And all of those arguments that, um, you know, attend that conversation are welcome and they need to be had. But I can just tell you, there's no, there's no, there's no shortcut to military capability. We and Europe have been living in this world where the peace dividend of the post-Cold War allowed us to kind of dump money on other things. And one of the reasons why I think you're seeing Europe respond the way it is, and particularly Germany, is because what Vladimir Putin has done, he threw cold water on that dream. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and and there's no escaping that. So it's going to force some really hard choices. Um, and I would I would be telling the president, like, sir, now is the time to start preparing the American public and start laying the political groundwork for kind of the inevitable future. Just a quick follow up. I mean, how much more investment do we need in cybersecurity? Every branch has their, you know, departments. How well staffed are those? Are there five people? Do we need 50? Like, where are we at? Well, one, there's always going to be more problem than there are people, Mm -hmm. right? So we're constantly constrained by that. Um, but, But two, I would say we're still ca- like catastrophically weak. Mm. Um, part of that is because we're the most digitally leveraged nation in the world. So we just have a huge, what's called threat surface. We just have a lot of attack points mm. um, and, and, you know, consumers are making choices and, and this is going to be a much bigger thing than some type of, of government policy, but it will include that we're making progress. It's necessarily going to take a long time just because of how big the problem is. But if you're asking me, should we and can we do more? The answer is uncategorically yes. Thank you so much. If people want to stay in touch with you, you are writing for The Dispatch now. Your excellent newsletter is there. They can follow you on Twitter. Where else can we keep up with you? Well, obviously, uh, as a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, you can go to AI.org and you can do a quick search for me and you'll see everything I'm doing. Um, The Dispatch newsletter is called The Current. Uh, You can subscribe to that. Uh, as you mentioned, Twitter, I mean, you know, Google me if I've written some kind of op-ed. I'm around. I'm, you know, whatever. <laughs> I'm, I'm a guy. Thank you so much. Thank you. My pleasure, ladies. Sarah and I have talked many times about our desire to age as gracefully as possible. And skincare is a huge piece of that. I spend a lot of time and money thinking about my skin and I have added ritual to my routine, which just gives me a lot of comfort. Ritual is here for us. They have created a wrinkle support skin supplement and conducted clinical studies. So we know it's working. They're taking the guesswork out of skincare. 
Ritual Hyacera is one of several ritual products that I love. I take the daily multivitamin, I take a probiotic, and Hyacera is that once daily skincare supplement that is clinically proven to reduce wrinkles and fine lines and increase skin smoothness in 90 days. I recently met a friend for the first time in person as opposed to online. And we were discussing the fact that I am 43 and she said, I cannot believe how young you look. And I thought, thank you, Ritual, for that. Start Hyacera to help minimize wrinkles without compromising on clean science. Hyacera from Ritual is a clinically proven skin supplement you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash pantsuit. Start Ritual or add Hyacera to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash pantsuit for 25% off. There's not much worse than a dry energy scalp. Also, when you get your hair colored and then it does not last as long as you and your stylist discussed, it could be that unfiltered, mineral-filled water is the culprit. Hard water is a leading cause of damaged hair and dry, irritated skin, and about 85% of the United States uses hard water, filled with dissolved minerals and added chlorine. That's where Canopy's new filtered shower head comes in. Canopy, known for their beauty hacks and reimagined humidifier, has revolutionized the filtered shower head. Dermatologists recommended this unique three-stage filtration system greatly reduces contaminants and odors in your shower water, leaving you with healthy hair and glowing skin. Best of all, the Canopy filtered shower head is hassle-free. Installation is a breeze, and its unique quick-release filter replacement feature allows for seamless filter replacement unlike any others on the market. Go to getcanopy.co to save $25 on your Canopy filtered showerhead purchase today with Canopy's hassle-free filter subscription. Even better, our listeners can use code Pantsuit at checkout to save an additional 10% off your Canopy purchase. Hurry, your hair and skin will thank you. Do you want a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable? Thanks to Third Love, you can have both. Third Love was started to take all the frustration, ick, and ugh out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, aka problems. Their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. And they've even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit right. It's time to get your problems solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get 15% off your order with code PODCAST15. Thank you so much to Klon Kitchen for joining us today. Before we leave you for the weekend, we just thought we would reflect for a moment on our experiences as substitute teachers. If, if you missed it, uh, Sarah and I knew that our school districts were really struggling to keep enough adults in every building to keep our schools operational, especially during the Omicron surge. So we applied to be substitute teachers. That is a long and drawn out process. We didn't make it in by the by the time the Omicron surge had left our school systems in a little bit better shape. But we are going in when we can. And we've both been in classrooms now. I'll be in a second grade classroom while you're listening to this on Friday. 
So Sarah, what what do you think? What are your what are your top line observations as we get into this? Well, I dove right off the deep end, y'all. I went to middle school. I went to a seventh grade science class where they were struggling with the concept. <laughs> so the teacher left me a lot of work for them to do, but they didn't understand the skill needed to do the work. So I had to teach myself how to balance chemical equations. Thank God for YouTube in about five, 10 minutes. By the end of the day, I was like really good at teaching it. <laughs> the beginning of that was a little rough. By the end of the day, I'd figured out the like, okay, I got to walk in the back of the room to make sure nothing's going on in the back. The person who's creating the disruption needs to go to the board and light the, the problems on the board, you know. And I didn't have to like, you know, make any referrals or do any disciplinary action. Uh, I, I kept them motivated, um, especially at the beginning of the day, by asking questions about my Tesla. They wanted to ask me a lot of questions about the Tesla. So I said, you turn in a worksheet, you get to ask a question about the Tesla. I had candy for the end of the day. So I, I it was exhausting. I did not sit down all day long. And it's just a constant incoming of requests. And middle schoolers are really relentless in that way. And um, But I had some really, really great moments. I had one kid that was like, man, subs are the worst. But then... I redirected him. We were doing a short story. He wrote like a pretty funny little rhyme about the short story and we had a good chuckle. And then he's like, I need paper to write that down. And before I handed him the paper, I said, do you want to say something to me about earlier today? And he said, I'm sorry. Some people were being mean to me. And I was like, thank you. I really appreciate that. That was like my highlight of the day. And we had that moment. But it's intense. It's intense out there. That's for sure. The not sitting, I think, is a, an important expectation to establish before you go in if you're going to do this. Even oh, yeah. during the planning period uh, for the teacher that I was subbing for, I was up cleaning the classroom because it's just just gets dirty with the little people, yep. you know, the elementary oh, classroom. it gets dirty with the middle schoolers, too. Uh, there were shreds of paper and crumbs of snacks and just mm-hmm. tissues, and it's, it's dirty in there. Um, so, so I was busting out the Clorox wipe and the broom uh, when they weren't in the classroom. I think that what has been striking to me, because I know that I am not teaching when I'm just there for a day, especially in an elementary classroom. I'm not teaching. You know what I mean? I'm just kind of shepherding Mm -hmm. them through the day. And I was at a birthday party this weekend with my younger daughter. And a little girl who was at the birthday party had been in that class. And it's been several weeks now since I was in her classroom, but she was really excited to see me. And her mom told me that she had talked for a couple weeks about how great I was, which I was not great. Like, listen, I was not great. I was there. Like, we were all just there. We got through the day together. (laughs) But it was a reminder that... You just don't know, like, what influences kids. And I hope to say this, especially for teachers in our audience who are feeling burnout and and exhausted and counting the days to the end of this school year, that, like, you just don't know what difference just your presence makes with these students and what things leave leave a mark. And, and I know you know that, but maybe it helps to hear that from someone who's just having that experience for the first time. Yeah, at church on Sunday, um, one of the girls that are that is in Griffin's class but not did not I was not a sub for her she was like oh my god everybody was talking about what a great sub you are I'm so jealous I didn't have you (laughs) and it made me feel like the queen of the world I love that so that was pretty awesome yeah I mean the kids were great and I didn't take the advice honestly that was offered to me which was you know just come down like a hammer be a jerk all day long like I just nobody needs that. that I did not want to do that Griffin's Middle school is pretty diverse, and I felt like there were a lot of kids in that room that did not need a white lady acting like they'd done something wrong by the second they walked in the room. It just was not – that was not the energy or the vibe I was looking for. And so, it went, you know, it 
there, there was a couple, but I could clearly see like it was not about me. Like what, the closest I ever got to like pulling the kid, he just got in trouble. And so not with me, but with somebody else. And I thought it's just not worth it. Like to do what? To double down on the fact that he's already in trouble. And so we got through. We got through. Now, I don't know if it would go. I, I would not describe it as going smoothly. I definitely was like depleted at the end of the day and watched a lot of succession when I got home and bowed out of all my parenting duties, which I really appreciate my husband. Although he was like, why are you even doing this? Like, if you're going to be so depleted at the end of the day, I was like, because that's the right thing to do. It's not like it's a stress management technique. <laughs> I'm Chad, just trying to do the right thing here. Chad told someone about it that he, I heard him say, my wife's moral compass takes her to some weird places. <laughs> oh, that's great. I think you're that's right, great. though. If I do, If I do one thing right with kids and not just you know, in a sub context, but I think with my own kids, with kids in our neighborhood, with kids at church, whatever, if I do one thing right with kids, I think it's that I, I take them seriously. Right. Mm -hmm. And I, I believe that they want to be good people doing good things in the world. And if they tell me their stomach hurts, I believe that their stomach hurts, you know, and if they, or their stomach might hurt because they're anxious, it doesn't mean they have a stomach virus. Like I love Sarah Schulman's people do things for reasons. Children are people, right? Like, just they're doing it for a reason. Yeah. I don't I don't need to diagnose everything for it to be a real thing for them, right? And right. um and I don't need to experience it the way they're experiencing it for it for it to be a real thing for them. And I th- I think that's why just being around helps. So if yeah. you've been thinking about this, I would encourage you to do it because I don't think you need a special skill other than being willing to be a, a calm, caring presence for for yeah. a day. I think a long-term sub is a whole different gig, a whole different gig. But if you're thinking about just popping in when you have time, our schools need people who are willing to do that. Yeah, God bless one of our local elementary schools was like, do you want to be a long-term sub for the special special ed teacher every Tuesday? And I was like, I do not. Thank Mm you. (laughs) I do not want to do that. That's a different thing. Well, thank you all for being here. We hope you have the best weekend available. We know things are tough out there uh, right now and always in some ways. Uh, So we're sending you lots of love. We'll be back in your ears next Tuesday. Pantsuit Politics is produced by Studio D Podcast Production. Elise Knapp is our managing director. Maggie Penton is our community engagement manager. Dante Lima is the composer and performer of our theme music. Our show is listener-supported. Special thanks to our executive producers. Martha Brunitsky. Linda Daniel. Allie Edwards. Janice Elliott. Sarah Greenup. Julie Haller. Helen Handley. Tiffany Hassler. Emily Holliday. Katie Johnson. Katina Zuganellis-Kasling. Barry Kaufman. Molly Kors. The Creeps! Lori Ladau. Lily McClure. Emily Neasley. The Cousins! Tawny Peterson. Tracy Putoff. Sarah Ralph. Jeremy Sequoia. Katie Steigers. Karen True. Annika Uveline. Nick and Elisa Valelli. Catherine Vollmer. Amy Whited. Jeff Davis. Melinda Johnston. Ashley Thompson. Michelle Wood. Joshua Allen. Morgan McHugh. Nicole Berkless, Paula Bremer, and Tim Miller.